Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 268, The Collapse of the Comdenian System. Last time, we talked to Nathan Websdale about some of the theories around why Byzantine provinces were breaking away from the empire just before the arrival of the Fourth Crusade. Today, we're going to talk about that process in more detail and answer your questions on why the state seemed to be collapsing as the Latins arrived. Why don't we start by talking about the pros and cons of the Komnenian system of government? I think that will remind you of the context in which this all took place and point us towards why things fell apart. As you know, Alexius Komnenos came to power with the empire at its lowest ebb. Almost all of Anatolia was lost and the state had gone bankrupt. Worst of all, anyone with troops left on the Asian shore kept trying to capture Constantinople. Once Alexius was in power, his most pressing concern was to put a stop to these damaging civil wars. And, as you know, he decided to simply cut provincial notables out of the process. If they no longer held important posts, then they wouldn't be able to make a bid for the throne. Instead, he gave every top job to people related to him, either by blood or by marriage. This was a handy solution since it both concentrated power in his family's hands and removed the need to pay large salaries to provincial commanders. To solve the cash flow problem, Alexius began assigning lands to those holding high office. From now on, instead of the government collecting tax revenue and paying you a salary, you would simply collect the taxes yourself from your estates and that would be your payment. This system was also extended to parts of the army. So, what were the pros and cons of this system? The most vital positive was that the civil wars came to an end. It took time. Alexius faced an endless stream of usurpers during his early years, but later in life they dried up, and his son and grandson faced almost no opposition, if you ignore Andronicus Komnenos and his family. This was a huge success and prevented the Roman Empire from being conquered by the Normans, which was a real possibility at the time. It also created a new form of legitimacy, which was to last all the way to 1453. The names attached to this new aristocracy, Komnenos, Ducas, and Paleologos, would remain the natural rulers of Romania for the next few centuries. A reflection of the success 
of Alexius John and Manuel in projecting an aura of royalty during their time in power. During the reigns of John and Manuel, Byzantium was once again a powerful state. With a large pool of family members to choose from, they were able to find competent generals and administrators to run the empire. Their armies were successful, and their treasuries full. So what were the downsides of this new system? Well, the Roman Empire had never had a ruling caste before. Certain groups or families had dominated for certain periods, but there was always a way for ambitious and competent men to rise to the top, either through the army or the bureaucracy. And the old court honours system had literally given men a way to buy a seat at the top table. By creating a fixed aristocracy, who dominated all the major government posts, the Comnenian system installed a glass ceiling that had never previously existed. This meant that talent from the provinces had far fewer ways to direct their ambition. It was still possible for them to rise up and be noticed, but unless they married into the ruling clan, they were unlikely to get far. And marrying into the Komnenoi became harder and harder, because Manuel increasingly betrothed the women of his family to foreign aristocrats some of who then entered imperial service, further clogging the pipelines to the top. This encouraged rich and talented provincials to stay in the provinces, to direct their investment into their local town, rather than into the court system, and eventually to wonder whether or not they would do a better job running things than the governor sent from Constantinople. It didn't help that many of these governors, by Manuel's day, were entitled princelings, who may well have exhibited the attitude that Nathan talked about in our last episode, that only those born and raised in the capital were true Romans, and the locals they now ruled over, with their rustic ways, were merely subject peoples. In some cases, these new aristocrats didn't even set foot in the provinces which paid them, it was not uncommon for estates to be assigned to a prince who never visited. He just let his managers collect the revenues and then ship them to the capital. Or those who did come to visit might be alien troops. Cumans, Pechenegs, Turks and Latins were granted pro noia, the right to collect money directly from the peasantry as payment for their services. If they settled on those lands and acted as landlord and bailiff, it could feel like you were living under a foreign occupation. The worst feature, it would seem, of the Komnenian system was the way that entitled princes would run off to foreign courts to ask for help. By viewing themselves as the natural ruling class of Byzantium, these men made common cause with the elites of neighbouring states rather than their own people, encouraging Normans and Turks to invade and slaughter their fellow Romans if it would put them back on top. This aristocratic attitude was in sharp contrast to the centuries when the Romans were aloof from the rest of the world, viewing foreigners as unworthy to stand shoulder to shoulder with true Byzantines. Ultimately, it was Alexius Angulos's belief that being installed by a foreign army would not create a serious problem for the empire, which doomed it.
It sounds then like there were a lot more cons to the Comnenian system than pros, but it was a system that succeeded for a century and solved many of the problems which seemed to be sinking the ship of state. I also don't think we can blame the system for the collapse of the empire. Without the growth of foreign power, the system would have been largely irrelevant. After Manuel's death, the Serbs, Hungarians, Normans and Turks all attacked simultaneously, while Italian pirates ruled the waves. No previous regime had ever had to face such an onslaught. That caveat aside, the Komnenian system clearly created a distance between the people and the government that had not existed before. In the old, old days, a province would have felt some form of direct connection to the capital. Local men would collect taxes and could pass on complaints to the centre, local lords would go to the capital to advocate for their homeland, and local soldiers would serve in the army. But under this new configuration, the government seemed more parasitic than ever, sending out arrogant dilettantes to govern, quartering foreign troops on their land and offering no route for local bigwigs to gain access to power and money. It's easy to see from this picture why provincial separatism, for the first time in a long time, would become a potential issue for the Romans. The reason why it didn't, until after Manuel's death, was the success of the Komnenian military. As long as the imperial army kept the peace, the provinces had no reason to want to detach themselves from its embrace. Once the army could no longer offer the provinces protection, the question became, what are we paying taxes for? This might seem like a, a tangent, but stay with me. This paradigm got me thinking, if military security is all that provincials think the government is for, then why didn't provinces attempt to defect the caliphate back in the day? After all, the government offered little help to those in eastern Anatolia during the 7th and 8th centuries. And I think this has to do with both the reach of Constantinople and the potential for alternatives. So although the government could only offer a limited defence of the homes of eastern Anatolians during that time, they could still reach them, as in a rebellion would be put down by an army sent from Constantinople. And then you have to consider the alternatives. For, say, Cappadocia to rebel, the locals would either have to become independent from Constantinople or join the caliphate. Neither option would have been good. Independence from Romania would have meant being raided by the Arabs anyway without any hope of help from the West whereas joining the caliphate would have meant accepting foreign occupation, the imposition of new taxes, and demands to join the army, which would have been used to help kill your fellow Christians. So yeah, provincial separatism in that context would not make sense. By the 12th century, though, independence looked far more appealing. As you'll recall, the first Byzantine province to go its own way was Trebizond, the city-state in the northeast of Anatolia. For large parts of Alexius and John's reign, the city was de facto independent, making deals with the Turks and keeping its revenues to itself. The Turkic occupation of the plateau had separated the region from Constantinople, 
and though imperial ships could reach them, it was considered too difficult and expensive to make an amphibious attack to bring them back into the fold. The Pontic Mountains offered the people of Trebizond a plausible defence against Turkic power, and so they exercised a degree of independence for decades until John Komnenos brought them to heel. It's that combination of distance from the reach of Constantinople and the possibility of providing for your own defence that leads to provincial separatism. Even more rebellious than Trebizond was Cilicia, resting to the south on the opposite shore from Trebizond. Again, Cilicia was separated from Constantinople by the plateau, and though the emperors found it easier to reach on foot than Trebizond, it was rarely safe in Komnenian hands. Unlike Trebizond, it did not have a strong Roman elite. The Armenians had moved there in such large numbers post-Manzikert that they were the dominant element. They were constantly looking to assert their independence, and with the creation of the Crusader states, they found a plausible ally to help defend themselves from Turkic attack. Next to go was nearby Cyprus, which, as you may recall, removed itself from the imperial orbit in 1184. Isaac Komnenos, one of those entitled princelings, declared himself emperor, but made no attempt to seize the throne. Instead, he and the Cypriot elite were quite happy to be independent from central control. The presence of so much western shipping heading to Utremir would have given them the confidence that they could remain connected to the wider world without the need for Constantinople. Underlying these issues was a sense that taxation was too high. We get hints of this in the letters written by bishops during this period. These bishops were usually true blue Constantinopolitans, dispatched to provincial cities to help provide a connection between centre and periphery, and yet their letters reveal real sympathy with the plight of their new flock. Komnenian tax farmers were, by all accounts, ruthless and efficient. They had to be, since the army was on the march almost every year during this century. This was, in many ways, not the fault of the Komnenoi, but the consequences of Manzikert. For Basil II, Anatolia had been a quiet, prosperous place, facing no external threat. That's what allowed him to spend decades campaigning in the Balkans, whereas the Komnenoi had no quiet front they could rely on. The Turks were always probing at the fringes of Roman rule, while the Serbians and Hungarians were rarely quiet in the West. The Byzantines were forced to constantly campaign just to maintain what they had. And once Manawil decided to start sending fleets to Egypt as well, the expenses really racked up. As you can imagine, all of this exploded after Manawil's death. The Hungarians sacked a series of Roman towns, then the Normans sacked Thessaloniki, and the Turks raided with impunity. It was clear to everyone that the government could no longer defend its people. And so, local strongmen began to take matters into their own hands. The Bulgarian revolt established a new imperial capital north of the Hemus Mountains, a new centre of power and wealth for men to look to for advancement. And since it was a multi-ethnic state, there was no barrier to Romans, Slavs and Vlachs all serving together. 
while the other rebellions were centred on imperial strongholds. Philadelphia in Anatolia was capital of the Thracesion theme. After years of Turkic raids, Theodore Mangafas decided that he could conduct a better defence of Roman lands if he kept the tax revenue for himself. While down in Greece, Leo Skouros took control of the northern Peloponnese, a key position for the Byzantine navy. Skouros seized local resources during a time when Greece was cut off from Constantinople by a series of revolts in Thrace, and he remained independent as the Fourth Crusade approached. There were several other rebellions, which I'm not even mentioning for the sake of simplicity. The remarkable thing is that none of these men had any intention of capturing Constantinople, because the city had become so weak under the Angeloi that they realised they would be richer and more secure if they stayed where they were. A complete reversal of centuries of behaviour. And I think we have to assume that part of the reason they didn't attempt to move to the centre was the knowledge that they were not Comnenian princes, that the rest of the aristocracy would not accept them and would work against them. And so moving for the centre just to, to seize it um, would not be enough. They would have to have enough power to crush the aristocracy completely and sort of replace them, which uh, the kind of resources which none of these rebels would have access to. Now, I'm still of the belief that given time, Constantinople could have recovered and could have retaken these territories. And most likely, if that happened, um, the man who accomplished it would have to reform the Comnenian system not necessarily by turning the clock back to the way things had been, because it seems like this new aristocracy were too embedded to be abolished, but some form of power sharing with provincials would have been necessary to get them back on board. Hopefully that's given you an overview of why the provinces were feeling alienated from the capital, and why the military defeats which the Angeloi kept suffering in their wars with Bulgaria led several provinces to just step away from the capital. But what was going on in Constantinople itself? Why had the government ceased to function as well as it should have? Why were the people running the streets? And why was the army so weak? Let's start with the army. We don't have a huge amount of detail about the Komnenian military beyond the way it's described in the histories. So as far as we can tell, it was largely an ad hoc affair. The basics were, as you might imagine, local militias would garrison forts, while at the centre, a core of experienced troops were retained on a permanent basis. But we aren't aware of any formal recruiting structures, like the old theme system. Our sense is that the army had a central reservoir of native troops, Komnenian aristocrats and their retinues making up the cavalry, while Thracian and Macedonian foot soldiers were the heart of the infantry. The shock troops were hired hands, groups of step riders or heavy Latin cavalry, both kept on the flanks of the army's formation ready to play the decisive role in breaking the enemy's resolve. We know that some troops were settled permanently on Roman lands in exchange for military service, we hear this about defeated Cumans, Pechenegs, and Serbians, but we don't have a sense that these units necessarily became permanent fixtures within the military. 
we don't hear about a legion of the Pechenegs, which can be traced throughout the Komnenian century. And that's the problem we face in trying to understand how the army was recruited and replenished. We know that many Latin knights took up service in the empire and were either paid directly or given pro-Neuer lands to support them. Perhaps a unit of Westerners would stay together for decades, recruiting new members when men retired or died, but we don't know. We certainly hear about groups of knights who came and went within a few years. So as far as we can tell, a lot of troops were recruited as and when they were needed. In the good times, when the money was flowing and victories were being achieved, men came running to take part in the fun. But when things got tough? Well, I think it's fair to assume that each change of regime saw the army reconfigure itself. Groups of knights who'd been serving Manuel may have decided to leave Byzantium when he died. There may even have been a round of layoffs after Myriokephalon, which was a very expensive failure. With the bloody rise of Andronicus and his attack on the Latin population of Constantinople, it wouldn't be a surprise to hear that some Latin troops decided to leave then. And when Andronicus fell, and the Angeloi rose, still more churn could be expected. With the empire losing provinces and revenue during Isaac's reign, we can assume that the government had less and less money, and so hired less and less troops, leaving the army to be composed of the core of native troops and the foreign contingents willing to work for less money. With each provincial revolt, it became harder and harder to find the money to keep the army strong and motivated. Several listeners looked on in bemusement at the Fourth Crusade and asked why a new army couldn't be raised to fight them. But the reality is the government was using all the money it had to pay the army that was defending the capital. It didn't have anything spare to afford reinforcements, let alone a proper fleet to defend the Golden Horn. There were garrison troops out in the provinces, but they were no match for Latin knights and many of them were involved in provincial breakaways or were offering their support to Alexius Angelos Komnenos when he fled the capital. Inside the city, the government was struggling, both for cohesion and for control of the streets. The population of Constantinople has always been a potential source of political upheaval, as you know well, during the Komnenian century, the city kept growing in size and wealth, but this came at the cost of unity. As we heard about in our last episode, the number of foreign residents in the city had grown considerably. This included provincial immigrants and merchants from the east, but most prominently it meant westerners. Not only did you have an entire Italian section of the city along the Golden Horn, but increasingly Latins were seen coming and going from the palace, establishing crusader institutions within the city and generally showing off their growing wealth and sophistication. This caused resentments and vitally provided a unity of purpose to the otherwise disunited mob. The guildsmen and workaday Roman population of the city were always grumbling and bickering amongst each other, just as people do in any major city. But dislike of the haughty Latins and their unorthodox ways meant that street violence and criminality suddenly had a focus. 
As we saw in the narrative on several occasions, large parts of the populace could be moved to assault their western neighbours. Andronicus Komnenos saw a potential source of strength in this. He wanted the richest local businessman on his side as a counterweight to the aristocracy that he was busy alienating. But be careful who you empower. Once the crowds had swept Andronicus from power and installed Isaac Angelos, they had a taste for regicide. Again, as we saw in the lead-up to the Fourth Crusade and during it, the people were not afraid to demand change at the top. This all left the elites rather cowering in the palaces at either end of the city. They needed a powerful emperor to put their house in order and to bring some muscle onto the streets. But neither happened. To be fair to the Angeloi, they had to be out of the capital, constantly campaigning during this period. But it seems like neither brother was able to fully master his own government. During the last decade of his reign, Manuel had begun empowering his bureaucracy again, allowing career administrators to take on important government roles rather than letting his family do everything. Andronicus had approved of this direction of travel as he tried to push more aristocrats out of positions of power. Both men seemed to recognise what we were talking about earlier, that allowing entitled nobles to run everything was not leading to the best outcomes. Unfortunately, though, in the short term, this seems to have empowered a bureaucratic elite who did not help the Angeloi become the powerful figures the empire needed. Remember that when Isaac Angelos was ousted, one of the reasons his brother was chosen to replace him was that he was married to Euphrosine Ducaina Kamatira, a woman from one of the leading bureaucratic families. Her father had been a very senior official who worked closely with Manuel. Her brother was head of the public post system, and either another brother or her uncle was the patriarch. This bureaucratic clan had enmeshed themselves with the aristocracy and were holding tightly to the reins of government. But as the swirl of provincial rebellions and shrinking tax receipts buffeted them, they were themselves unable to empower the kind of figure who could have saved the state. Perhaps though, with the arrival of the Fourth Crusade, it would not have been possible to save it. I hope that has answered most of your questions about the collapse of the Komnenian system. I received lots of different questions, and it would have taken a long time to go through them all individually, but this overview should have filled in most of the gaps. Some asked for a full tour of all the provinces, but I think when we return to the narrative, uh, it will do that for us. Um, the Roman world has now dissolved into a dozen or more statelets, and we will be visiting them all. I'd say a lot of your questions were trying to uncover why the state declined so quickly, given it had survived so many challenges in the past. And I think we probably have to take both a long and a short view of that. The long view is to look at the Komnenian century as a response to Manzikert. The aftermath of that great defeat saw the Romans lose practically the whole of Armenia, Anatolia, and Syria in just a few years. And that was a, a devastating loss, both financially and psychologically. It bankrupted the state, and it laid waste to the system of honours that had held the empire together. Soon afterwards, the Normans invaded the Balkans, 
a Western power, quite capable of defeating the Byzantines in battle, invading from a direction that no one had ever taken before. That is quite the traumatic set of circumstances for any state to have to deal with. The Komnenian century was, in many ways, a triumphant riposte to that collapse. When the dust settled on Manuel's reign, the system began to fall apart again. Endemic civil war returned, the state again was near bankruptcy, and a new Western invasion finished the Romans off. You could say that the problems which Manzikert had laid bare were held off, but were never fully dealt with. In that sense, decline did not happen in the 24 years from Manuel's death to the sack of the city. It was a long process unfolding over a 130-year period. But I think you can also look at things as being entirely about that 24 years. In the sweep of a thousand-year history, 24 years sounds like the blink of an eye. But if you think about how your life has changed in the past quarter century, it's easier to imagine just how much can happen in a couple of decades. We've seen many medieval states swept away after one bad campaign season. So for Byzantium to collapse over a 20-year period is not so implausible. And as I would still argue, despite the provincial separatism and the many problems uh, that the state was facing, it was the Fourth Crusade that brought Byzantium down. Had the Latins sailed on past, Constantinople may have recovered from this, and uh, we would be talking about the strengths of the Komnenian system and how it continued to survive despite this crisis period. If you're not satisfied with my answers, then why not come on one of our Patreon Zoom calls and ask me a follow-up? I'm going to host three calls on Sunday the 21st of May, 2023, Anyone who's signed up at patreon.com forward slash history of Byzantium can join in, even those of you at the $1 level, though why not try the $6 level for a month and gain ad-free access to over 25 bonus episodes of the show, most of them an hour long or more. Anyway, come along, ask me questions, see the agonies my face goes through as I try to remember all the things I've studied over the past year or so. And uh, <laughs> I'll try and sound coherent without the benefit of editing. Uh, next week, more questions. And uh, that should uh, answer everything I've been sent uh, within reason before uh, the Zooms take place. See some of you then. <laughs>